All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with the great roadblock debate. If you've done any driving in Vancouver over the past week, you may have been hit with a roadblock or a detour caused by climate change protesters blocking roads and bridges. Members of Extinction Rebellion this week launched a spring blockade campaign. On Saturday, they blocked the intersection of West Georgia and Granville. On Sunday, they blocked the Granville Street Bridge. On Monday, they tried to block the Lionsgate Bridge. Lots of people were arrested there. It's all in the name of fighting climate change and specifically the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now have a listen to this now. This is some sound from their recent protest in front of the Vancouver Courthouse where protesters dumped fake blood on the steps. Okay. Okay, who are these protesters? What are they trying to accomplish? Let's discuss now. We've got both sides of it here for you. On the line is Mayan Kreitzman. Mayan is a member of Extinction Rebellion. She's a former candidate for the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Mayan, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Also on the line is Margareta Dovgal. She is a researcher with ResourceWorks. She supports the Trans Mountain Pipeline. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Margareta, thank you for coming on. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Okay. Mayan, let me go to you first. Can, can you explain to the listeners, especially people who may have been inconvenienced by these roadblocks over the last week, you know, what your group is trying to accomplish here? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Well, Extinction Rebellion is a global nonviolent direct action movement that's calling urgent attention to the climate and ecological crisis. And we're just recognizing the last 30 years of more polite forms of advocacy and protest have not been effective. Greenhouse gas emissions and ecosystem destruction have continued to increase. So it's time for people to escalate their actions and actually use the methods of nonviolent disruption and direct action that have a long history of being effective where other forms of advocacy have not. Don't you um, though don't you though run the risk of just like pissing people off like if this is a battle for hearts and minds if you're trying to get people onto your side what is the point of just you know angering them? Yeah, I, I do want to apologize to anybody that has been inconvenienced. This really is not about blaming or shaming drivers or other individuals. You know, members of our group also have jobs to go to and drive cars, and we are all part of this toxic system. It's not about um, about blaming or shaming anybody. It's really about getting the people in power to pay attention because they have not been responsive to, let's say, more reasonable science, advocacy, letter writing, petition writing. All of that has been tried and has not worked. So it's okay. time to like Okay, well, let's get the other side of it. Margareta Dovgal. Margareta, what do you think of this campaign? Much appreciated to, to be here. I mean, honestly, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, I, and ultimately, it boils down to one important question. What are emissions? Uh, mostly, it's people engaged in the course of their lives. They're using energy. They're driving to work. And we know that modern life continues to be very energy intensive. Uh, contrary to what a lot of people will have you think, who try to draw these issues on black or white lines, there isn't some center of power or profit creating emissions uh, just for the sake of it. 
but it's, it's just people. It's human activities. And today, more than 80% of all energy consumed on the planet comes from fossil fuels. In BC, that's about 60% because we have hydro. But of course, our quality of life is dependent on emissions-intensive activities all around the world. Okay, well, what do, you, what, do you think of this, what do you think of this group blocking roads and bridges in Vancouver? I think it's incredibly self-serving to claim that democracy isn't working when your movement's arguments and alarmism just aren't landing. I don't think there's something fundamentally broken with expecting those who seek power and influence, like Extinction Rebellion seeks, to really seek to understand and respond to the needs of people, of Canadians. If we accept that, then that yeah. leads to really absurd conclusions about our majority-led democracy. Okay, Maya, you, you apologized earlier to people who are inconvenienced by these by these blockades. Another thing that occurred to me, when you're blocking traffic like this, when you're shutting down major arteries in Vancouver, when you're shutting down major bridges like this, you're forcing people to stop and idle in their cars, maybe take an alternative route that makes them forces them to drive longer distance. Doesn't that put more emissions into the atmosphere? Okay, well, you're taking it to the micro level. And what I want to do is talk about Canada's policies and Canada's overall responsibility. Canada's government is totally failing. And Margaret was talking about democracy. Look, Canada has the literal worst record in the G7 on our emissions, which has, gone, which has gone up since 1990. And that's not because of a few people idling their cars because of a protest. It's because of a total failure in policy and governance. So, no, I would not say we have a responsive government. I would say our government is lying in our faces about progressive climate policy while actually exacerbating the climate crisis, which right. is going to cause disasters, mass suffering, death, starvation, mass migration. This stuff is serious. And so, like... So what do you want, what do you want an, the government to do? Well, look, greenhouse gas emissions, whether you produce them or burn them, are part of the problem. Canada does a disproportionate amount of both of those things, and we need to stop. If we need to get to zero emissions, we need to actually stop doing the things that cause emissions, like building out additional fossil fuel infrastructure. So things like the TMX pipeline are a total no-brainer. And then there's, you know, a list of, of possibilities in terms of policies to rapidly cut and cut emissions and transition to a more uh, sustainable okay. economy. Okay, Margareta, what do you say to that? Extinction Rebellion continues to ask for net zero by 2025. Let's do the math there for a second. Shy of total economic collapse, there's no overnight or decade-long solution that eliminates our existing energy infrastructure globally. The main challenge we have is how we can rapidly transition, and Band-Aid solutions are just not going to cut it. We need investments in technology and people over time that steer us in the right direction, and that requires economic productivity. That's planes, trains, automobiles. That's the movement of people and goods. That's Canada's capacity to export in-demand resource commodities to the world. And we know that the means to create global systems-wide change doesn't just arise from nowhere. So we need to be realistic about how we do that. And we also need to think of the human factor here. If we accept what Extinction Rebellion is calling for in this very, very compressed timeline, we need to deindustrialize. And that would be a total yeah. economic shutdown and dismantling our most productive industry. Okay. Is that right, Mine? Like your campaign is trying, is pressuring government to, to commit to a net zero carbon emissions by 2025 like how is that even is that correct is that your goal yeah and let me how is that, that possible how is that okay. possible yeah well let me talk to that i mean 
First of all, let's just remember that in World War II, Canada and the industrialized world economy turned on a dime in a matter of weeks and months in order to totally change the economy to wartime production. So it's not like it's not like rapid shifts in the economy are unprecedented. We can do this if we if we understand that we need to do this. The 2025 date is because what scientists are saying is net zero by 2050 for the entire world. Canada is a high-emitting, wealthy country that disproportionately consumes and produces greenhouse gases. And so justice implies that we need to actually do it faster than other countries. And also, the 2050 date does not take into account tipping points and nonlinearities in climate modeling because that is a relatively um, conservative estimate that's based on, you know, a very wide consensus. And the more recent modeling actually shows that we need to cut emissions faster than that. So 2025 is actually a very reasonable number. And uh-huh. it's not so much about the targets and the dates. It's actually about yeah. starting now and doing okay. it as fast and as like robustly as possible as we can now. Okay. And things like the Trans Mountain Pipeline make it impossible because okay. it means we're just maintaining the status quo and building out more infrastructure for decades. Okay, let me just jump in there real and real quickly. Just mine. I just want to ask you real quickly, and then we're going to take a break and take some phone calls. But yeah, I mean, you're uh, you understand politics. You're a former politician yourself. You ran for the BC Green Party, so you understand how this works. In order to achieve these type of goals, which I don't I don't think are achievable, but let, let's just you know, for the sake of argument, saying that you're trying to actually achieve what you say you're trying to achieve. The only way you're going to do it is to change the hearts and minds of people and change the government, get people to vote for your cause and get governments to do what you want. There's no way that you're going to convince people to do that when you're blocking roads and bridges. You know, that's just actually going to do the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. I suggest that to you, that you actually set back your own cause. But your thoughts? Look, the physics of a rapidly warming atmosphere in the ocean are not a popularity contest. It's not about what's popular or what's not. And the history of nonviolent direct action shows that a relatively small number of people that are mobilized to take action and disrupt the system can be effective even when they're extremely unpopular. And you can go back to the civil rights movement and research this if you want to. Look, scientists have been pushing for this for 30 years and it hasn't worked. That means an escalation in tactics is required. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about roadblock activism here. My guests are Mayan Kreitzman from Extinction Rebellion. They blocked a bunch of roads and bridges in Vancouver this week. Margareta Dovgal from A Resource Works. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Sharon and Burnaby. Hi, Sharon. Well, I have so many responses to this whole issue, but my main response is yes, maybe Canada is one of the top emitters in the G7. But scientifically, and this is from other scientists, have said that even if Canada shut down everything and stopped using gas emission, that we would only, still only drop world emissions by 0.02%. So, I mean, you're letting our country fall to the bottom in order to reduce world emissions by that amount. And also with regards to oil and gas, it's just not the stuff that goes in vehicles. It's also in running shoes. It's in plastic covers for your cell phones. I mean, the whole world needs to revamp the system, and that's not going to happen in three or four or five years. It's going to take time. Thank you for the call. Mayan, what do you say to her? Well, look, if people are going around killing people do you go around killing people no that would make you a murderer and that's not even an analogy greenhouse gas emissions leading to global warming will literally kill people 
and cause mass migrations and untold suffering. So yes, I totally agree with the caller that we need transformations in our consumer products and in our energy systems. And we need the policies to get us there, not soft-pedaling the facts and the severity of the crisis and causing delays in the necessary action, which is, okay. seems to be what Margareta is getting at. Okay, Peter in North Van on the open line. Hi, Peter. I, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm very frustrated by this kind of thing. And, and Mike, as soon as you brought up to the guest how uh, they're creating emissions through traffic jams and excess idling, she immediately diverted and turned to what she called the macro issue, which was government. And I would say this to your guest. If you know that the root cause is government policy, why are you combating against we the people? Go combat government. Get on your little e-scooter, go out to Ottawa, go to your MP's office, because when your right to peaceably protest infringes on my right to free to free, freely move about the, the area and the country, you're now not peacefully protesting, you're combative. And my motivation when you do that is not to phone my local MP and say, hey, you need to listen to these people and change policy. No, my, my inclination is phone them and say they're putting lives at risk and throw a lot of them in jail. And when you can't connect the logic to see that you're protesting government policy, yet you somehow think it's valid and worthwhile to go and inconvenience tens of thousands of people, if you can't make that logical connection, why should I trust your logic on any of the science that you purport to put forward? Okay, okay, thank, thank you for the call. Mayan, what do you say to him? Sure, and first of all, I just want to apologize again to people that have been inconvenienced. This really is not about targeting drivers or blaming or shaming anybody, and we are truly apologetic about that. Um, the thing is that governments have ignored all of those reasonable ways of protesting. I've been at so many protests outside of MPs offices, etc. I've written so many petitions and letters, and it hasn't worked. And so what we're resorting to is civil resistance. And the history of civil resistance throughout the world is that when people stop cooperating with systems of governance and withdraw their consent and cooperation from these unjust yeah. systems, they can change. And that, that works even when the legal systems in a country are, are like agreeing with this injustice, which okay. is the situation we're in right now, where okay, it's just... totally legal to increase carbon emissions and destroy ecosystems, which threatens our future. We just got a minute left here. Margareta Dovgal, what do you say to that? What do you say? What do you think about these tactics? Like Mayan is saying that this is, these are last resort tactics, but you know, I think the caller very effectively said, well, I don't know, it could have the opposite effect. Your thoughts. Yeah. It's a small and vocal minority that thinks it has the right to disrupt people's lives. Look, Canadians are tired. People are struggling through the pandemic right now. And as we've heard, these protesters use alarmism, skipping the hard and necessary work of persuading people. And that's what we need to do to both get out of this pandemic, to recover, to rebuild our economy, and to transition in a way that's sustainable and realistic. Okay, welcome back to the show. Oh, man, oh, man, we had a ton of phone calls there about that last segment, that debate about anti-pipeline protesters blocking roads and bridges in Vancouver. It was just impossible to get to everyone. He's getting a ton of emails here, too, from listeners during the commercial break. So I encourage you, phone the buzz line today. Let me know what you think there. Leave me a voicemail, and we may play it later on the show. 604-331-BUZZ 
is the number to call, 604-331-2899. Quick programming note for you, too. I got uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth coming up on the show a little later. He'll be up at the uh, 1030 hour. And uh, I want to talk to him about the spike in gun violence we're seeing around Metro Vancouver. This gang war is sieging bullets flying at shopping malls. We had yet another deadly shooting last night in Metro in Surrey. This time a woman shot dead in Surrey last night. No word or confirmation whether that one is gang-related, but there have been five shootings in Metro Vancouver in the past six days. Three of them have been fatal. I'll speak to the top cop of the province there, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, coming up at 10.30. Lots of time for your calls on the open line, too. All right, let's talk about uh, care homes in B.C., which has been ground zero for the COVID-19 outbreaks that we've seen over the last year, uh, over a year during this pandemic. And we continue to see troubles and challenges in Abbotsford at Menno Place. Uh, They sent home seven staff members sick over the past two weeks. Turned out five of them, uh, they had COVID-19. Five of those workers had not been vaccinated against the virus it raises the question are there some jobs where vaccination is so important in this case to protect vulnerable seniors that it should be mandatory it should be a required part of the job should some employers have the right to know your vaccine status let's discuss now with my guest terry lake he's the ceo of the bc care providers association representing long-term care in the province. Terry Lake, it's great to have you on again. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, tell me about the situation at Menno Place in Abbotsford. What are your concerns there? Well, obviously, concern is that after a year of being locked away from their family and friends and bearing the brunt, as you mentioned, of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that we're going to have long-term care homes once again locked down because of uh, outbreaks that occur due to unvaccinated uh, staff members. You know, we've seen the vaccination uh, program have a dramatic effect on the number of outbreaks and the number of deaths in long-term care, but it's still a very vulnerable uh, uh, environment, and uh, it begs the question, as you said, if you are working at the bedside of the most vulnerable people in our society, in the middle of a pandemic, should it not be required that you have uh, a COVID vaccine or at the very least, mandatory uh, rapid testing to ensure that you're not passing the virus on? Okay, we know that seniors in our province receive priority access to the vaccine, which is a good thing. And we've got a a very, very high percentage of seniors have have received at least the first shot. Many have received are fully vaccinated with the booster shot too, which which is great. What about uh, staff in long-term care homes? Were they also offered priority access to the vaccine? Absolutely, uh, they were among the you know the priority groups at the very beginning. Yeah, uh, and we did see good uptake, particularly in homes that had experienced an outbreak. People saw firsthand the impact it has uh, on uh, on the people uh, whom they look after, as well as their uh, their colleagues at the bedside. And so we had great uptake there in the homes where they did not experience an outbreak. We saw more. Uh, hesitancy, although the numbers uh, are not available to us. So if you're an employer um, running a nursing home, you you absolutely have no idea 
how many people on your staff have been vaccinated unless they volunteer that information to you. And mm. so when you ask, you know, the government and the provincial health officer what the vaccine status is, they will tell you how many people in the system have been vaccinated, but they can't break it down uh, home by home as to how many staff have been vaccinated and, uh, and you know, how vulnerable that setting still is. Okay, so we don't know or you don't know what is the percentage of care home staff have received the vaccine. Well, I think you can extrapolate the number of vaccine doses given and the number of people employed in long-term care and come up with a number. Uh, but that doesn't tell you what's going on in an individual nursing home. Well, well what, is, what is that number? Well, it's between 85 and, and 90% from what we understand. Okay. But again, we know that in Cottonwoods and Kelowna, for instance, only 65% of the staff there had been vaccinated when they had an outbreak uh, last month. Wow. And, How um, do they know that? Well, uh, this is what Interior Health had uh, had offered, uh, you know, in response to the story. But again, wow. that's an owned and operated government-run uh, facility, so uh, you know they have may have more access to information than the contracted providers. But what this doesn't take into account, Mike, is the uh, number of uh, new people working in long-term care, where there has always been a fair amount of turnover in staff, and so. You know, there may have been people coming into uh, the workplace uh, after the initial tranche of vaccines that, that still have not had their first vaccine. Okay, I find it kind of astonishing to think that in a long-term care home dealing with vulnerable citizens that you would have the staff only 65% vaccinated. Like, I just find that amazing. Like, if someone is choosing to work in that environment, I, I would think that most people who were in this job would, would want to be vaccinated. Uh, well, uh, you know, I share that view, um, you know, and, and there are reasons, obviously, people choose uh, to weigh. There, there may be physical reasons. Uh, they may be concerned about pregnancy or, or um, uh, breastfeeding. Um, you know, there, there, there may be questions that they have, but certainly there's lots of information available, and uh, operators are uh, encouraging their staff to ask those questions, providing the information. The public health officials have provided lots of information so, you know, when you, when you think about your kids going to school, you have to declare what their vaccination status is. But mm -hmm. in the most vulnerable setting uh, possible, uh, that, uh, that same level of um, information sharing is uh, not required. Okay. Do you think that employees of long-term care homes should be required to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I think it should be um, a requirement, uh, you know, with some exceptions. I mean, there there may be, you know, just like in in the old uh, days when we had a mandatory flu or or mask uh, uh, policy for influenza season with frontline healthcare workers. Um, you know, there there are exceptions. So there are people who can't tolerate a vaccine. Perhaps they may have religious objections to a vaccine, but then let's uh, have another layer of protection. We have rapid tests by the hundreds of thousands sitting in boxes around the province paid for by the federal taxpayers that could be used uh, three times a week, easily done uh, for those people that choose not to be vaccinated right. for whatever reason. And, and why wouldn't we use those? Right. When someone applies for a job in a long-term care home, is the employer allowed to ask in a job interview, have you been vaccinated against COVID-19 or is that against the law? 
Well, there's, um, I guess there's there's different opinions on that, uh, Mike. Uh, people, uh, unions particularly, will argue that uh, it's a privacy uh, issue and yeah. that you can't ask those questions. Um, we have had um, legal opinion that says for new employees particularly, there's an, an extremely strong case to be made that um, a, a vaccination against COVID is a fit-for-work requirement. So it is, uh, you know, it is necessary, just like steel-toed work boots would be necessary on a construction site, uh, then a, a COVID vaccine would be necessary for new employees. Even for existing employees, there's a strong argument to be made. In fact, the Canadian Medical Association has said that uh, that government should mandate mac- uh, uh, mandatory vaccines, as in fact they have in the province of Quebec that passed legislation wow. Not too long ago, saying you either have to have a vaccination or regular rapid testing if you if you choose not to. Oh, and then, and that is for long term care in Quebec. Absolutely. Wow. So so they've done it. They've actually made it mandatory in Quebec. They have, and yeah. you know, I mean, okay. Quebec had a terrible first wave in long term care, the worst in the country. But they learned lessons quickly, and they oh. made a lot of changes so that the second wave had not nearly the impact in Quebec uh, as it did in Ontario, for instance, or even uh, compared to BC. So they've they've been bold, and they've uh, they've they've learned lessons in the first wave that have really helped out in second and third wave there. Okay, I find it very interesting that you mentioned that your association has retained a lawyer, and you've got a legal opinion on this. Are you anticipating that uh, this could be challenged in court? Well, I mean, it's operators themselves that have to decide if they want to put in that requirement, again, particularly for new employees. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. There's been, you know, numerous uh, legal uh, decisions, whether that's in court or at arbitration hearings around the mandatory vaccines, most of which have sided with the mandatory vaccination uh, policies uh, from uh, from the past. Uh, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, the government of B.C. Uh, backed away from the mandatory um, uh, flu vaccine or masking policy. Uh, they uh, went into discussions with the BC Nurses Union, for instance, and and agreed that an education campaign to increase the the uptake of flu vaccine would would uh, would suffice. Um, yeah. But you know, COVID is not the flu, Mike, and and so yeah. I think we need a different approach. Are there any professions in British Columbia right now where it's mandatory to receive a vaccine as a requirement of the job? Your I'm, I'm not aware. I uh, don't have that specific information. But, um, you know, I mean, anecdotally, we know there are some workplaces that, that do require uh, vaccines. We know when you travel, uh, you're required to have right. certain vaccines. So this is not something that is, you know, completely new to the workplace or to our daily lives. Um, and again, in the most vulnerable workplace, uh, for for staff safety as well as the safety of residents and and family visitors, uh, it makes enormous sense at least to me. Yeah. All right. Welcome back. My guest is Terry Lake, CEO, BC Care Providers Association. Should employees of long term care homes be required? to get the COVID-19 vaccine as a requirement of the job. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go right to your phone calls. Michael in Coquitlam. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I think any employer should have the right to ask their employees if they've gotten the vaccine and fire the people who haven't. Uh, there should be no exceptions, religious or otherwise. And here's why. People talk about their freedoms. Well, what's more important about the freedom to live a healthy life, the freedom to not be infected with a deadly virus? 
I'm tired of yeah. suffering the consequences of people's intentional ignorance. Okay, Michael, thank you for the call. Well, I wonder if we had a rule like that, Terry Lake, would it end up immediately in front of a judge with a court challenge? What your thoughts? Well, I'm sure it would, and I, yeah. you know, I expect the Quebec legislation will be challenged, so we'll learn something yeah. from that. But Michael makes a good point about just knowing the vaccination status, because uh, that is helpful, because, of course, you can uh, rearrange your work schedule so that those who are not vaccinated would work on a different wing, perhaps, than the most vulnerable residents. Or if there were uh, a small outbreak, then, then obviously you would not want them working in that wing. So even in mm. the face of, of, of no vaccination, the knowledge of that is important. Right. Roland in North Van. Hi. Um, hello. I'm, uh, I'm against uh, mandatory uh, vaccination uh, of staff, um, and for a reason. And I'm, I'm appalled by the previous speaker who um, feels everyone should be forced. And my, my reason is that uh, I, I just heard the statistics um, uh, that in, in the care homes, 80% of the people have been vaccinated. It was about 80 in that neighborhood. And uh, we have population, we have uh, herd immunity when we get to, um, to I think, 70% is what I heard Biden say on the, on the television a few days ago. Yeah. And uh, in, in my opinion, I know that the whole population has not reached herd immunity, but I think there's got to be a balance. Okay, Rowan, thank you for the call. Okay, what about that, Terry Lake? Like, if you have a, a very large percentage of the residents vaccinated and most of the, and most of the staff vaccinated, do you reach effective herd immunity in the facility? Well, uh, obviously, as we've seen, the number of outbreaks and the number of deaths has gone down dramatically because of the vaccine. Uh, but we yeah. do know of personal examples of uh, residents that have had both of their vaccines and, um, and, and still got COVID and, in fact, passed away from COVID. So older, wow. uh, particularly frailer uh, residents, uh, don't have a strong immune system as a younger person. And so it, herd immunity in this uh, environment of, of uh, older, frailer uh, people is not the same as herd immunity in a younger, okay. you know, generalized uh, British Columbia population. Okay, let's go Ram on the line in Port Moody. Hi. Uh, good morning, Mike. Hi, right, go ahead. Uh, well, um, I don't know why the previous caller was appalled, but anyways, like whoever is against this, uh, I think they just purely against logic. Here's the thing. Uh, health of others, safety of others is always uh, surpassing the priority of the privacy. So if you are clinging on to privacy, I think the issue is somewhere else. They just uh, don't want to um, go with logic. They should be able to ask their employees. They should be able to mandate that. And because, again, this is for the safety of everyone, not just for 20% yeah. or 80%. Okay, Ram, thanks very much for the call. Well, who knows? We could be heading in that direction. Let's go to another call, Robert in Burnaby. Hey, Robert. Let's go to Margaret and Langley instead. Hey, Margaret. Uh, hi, uh, Mike. Um, yeah, I think the rapid testing is not utilized enough. I mean, you use the tools, like they say, in the toolbox that you have. Uh, that's logical. So you use the rapid testing on the staff who are absolutely opposed to a quick jab in the arm. Um, and then uh, if they have allergies, how do they know they have allergies? Because these are totally new vaccines in the world. And also mm. the, uh, the other man who just said, you know, privacy, what's privacy? It's a bunch of junk. Pri nothing's mm. private anymore. As soon as you put something on that Facebook, it's not private anymore. So that's a load of 
hocum pocum. And, you know, anything (laughs) to do with protection of the seniors or any patient in a hospital, um, you know, should supersede uh, legalities and privacy because privacy has nothing to do with it. Thank Thank you for the call, Margaret. Appreciate it. Terry Lake, thank you for being a guest on the show today. We're out of time. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you, Michael. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the murder and mayhem we're seeing on the streets of Metro Vancouver now. Bullets flying outside of shopping malls and gas stations. We have seen some brazen daylight targeted hits here in the lower mainland as we see a spike in gun violence. There was another deadly shooting in Surrey last night. This time it was a woman. Uh, Police just in the last hour saying they believe this particular uh, deadly shooting was not gang related not gang related a man in his tw- in his 20s also well known to police in custody in that case there have been five shootings in metro vancouver in the past six days three of the shootings have been fatal one of the more disturbing ones was a 29 year old bikram deep randawa he was an off-duty provincial prison guard shot and killed saturday afternoon in a busy parking lot in delta let's discuss all these developments now with my guest mike farnworth He's BC's Minister of Public Safety. He's the Solicitor General. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Can I get your general thoughts and reaction to what we're seeing here on the streets of Metro Vancouver here the last five days? I mean, I think it's, it's, very, uh, it's very disturbing, uh, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's frustrating that, that we're seeing this going on, and, and uh, it's, uh, it's something that's just completely unacceptable. Okay, can I ask you specifically about the, the deadly shooting of Bikram Deep Randawa, who was a provincial corrections officer off-duty at the time, shot dead in a parking lot in Delta on Saturday. Uh, is the provincial corrections system, is that your responsibility as minister? Yep. Okay, so this is, a, this is a guy who worked directly under you and your ministerial authority. What are your thoughts on him being shot in this way in such a brazen fashion? Uh, first, my condolences to the family of, of Officer Randawa because I mean this is just it was extremely shocking and, and very disturbing uh, when I heard uh, when I heard the news, and um, I know that the uh, the police in Delta are looking at uh, every possible avenue and, and motive into uh, the reason uh, for this for this uh, for this uh, tragic shooting because it, it it it's just it was it was very disturbing. Yeah, do you have any specific concerns as the minister responsible for the for the prison system and the, the provincial correction system here that this guard was a provincial corrections officer shot in a targeted killing? Like I know I know that you don't direct the police and tell them what to do. They operate independently of you, but do you receive do you receive briefings on, on cases like this, especially when it directly impacts your area of responsibility? I do receive briefings uh, on uh, on what is taking place in terms of uh, of you know gang activity or on specific uh, cases such as this. I will get I will get a briefing, um, and uh, what I can tell you is is that uh, you know the, pr- the police will be doing everything they can, uh, the Delta Police um, where this took place, but also uh, police forces around the Lower Mainland in terms of uh, you know of of trying to, uh, to to solve this case because, quite yeah. frankly, it is very concerning. Uh, that's why it's important we know that that what happened um, because you know the corrections officers deal with some pretty uh, dangerous uh, and violent individuals. They have a very challenging and dangerous job, and if this was related to that, that would be incredibly concerning. 
Yeah. Do you have any concerns specifically about the safety and security of prison guards in the province? Like if you ask for any kind of review or investigation about uh, whether prison guards in particular are at risk here? We look at, uh, we want to ensure that at all times our, uh, our correctional officers are operating in a work safe and uh, uh, protocols and rules in place that ensure safety, uh, ensure their safety uh, and the safety of people uh, working and, and, uh, and held in our correctional facilities. So that's something that we take very seriously all the time. Um, what's important right now in this particular case is that the Delta police are looking at all different, uh, are looking at all, all angles and all possible motives um, you know, for, for, this, for this tragic killing. Uh, and it's, uh, I will let them do that work, which uh, they are very capable of doing. Okay, speaking to Mike Farnworth, he's BC's public safety minister, about the spike in gun violence we're seeing here in the lower mainland. Uh, you mentioned that you receive regular briefings on, on gang conflict. What can you say about the, the gang war that appears to be raging here? Well, what we know is that uh, it spikes from time to time, um, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the police uh, interdict and they make arrests and people get taken out. And then, you know, there's, there's new people move in and there's turf wars. And a lot of times that's, that's what triggers these, 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 these gang wars. What I think is, is disturbing uh, is the number of is, is younger people that we see involved. Um, and, you know, that's something that, 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 is, a, that is a challenge. Uh, but at the same time, uh, police are, are working extremely hard and there's been, you know, uh, put in place. There's a lot of programs now in place to uh, and investments that have been made by the province over the last number of years to give police additional tools. Uh, and some of them are really starting to, uh, to bear fruit, for example. Yeah, well, I think uh, there's a lot of parents probably listening here right now who are concerned about young people getting involved in, with gangs, too. And, and yet we're living at a time when just over the past couple of weeks we saw two separate school boards in Metro Vancouver uh, vote to end the police liaison programs in schools that have been in place for nearly 50 years. Do you have concerns as minister that these programs are being being shut down, that the police will say have been effective in, in steering kids out of gangs? What I would hope is that when school boards, which are elected and make these decisions, that they take into consideration um, the, that they would have a plan or, or, or different programs if they feel the current one isn't working. Um, you know, that's the area that's under their, that's under, that's under their, uh, their purview. Um, from the provincial perspective, what I want to do is to make sure that the police have got the tools uh, that they need uh, to be able to go after gangsters um, and those involved in the gang life and, and get them out and get them arrested and charged. And that was one of the reasons why, for example, we, we created the, uh, the BC Witness Security Unit, an initiative of the government that has, uh, I think has, has, has been quite successful to date, with over right. 142 charges having been laid, um, and 42 murder charges in particular. That's why we just recently opened this year the, uh, the Firearms Forensic in- Unit uh, in Surrey, the first of its kind in this province, so that we're not having to send firearms for forensic analysis back east to Ottawa, but we've got the capability now of doing it here in British Columbia so police can get a lot faster uh, information. Those are the kinds of things that we have to keep on doing to support police in terms of uh, dealing with a lot of this gang violence. Okay, well, I appreciate you pointing out that these are decisions of a a locally elected school board. I I understand that, but I, I guess in your role as a senior law enforcement officer, uh, enforcement officer in the province as the Solicitor General and as someone who is concerned about young people getting attracted into gang life, did you support these programs? Like when these, these are programs that have been around in Vancouver schools for like 50 years. 
did you support those programs when they were in the schools? They're not provincially funded programs. I know. I'm just saying, do uh, those, you support those, them? Those, though? Are, those, those, are, those are those are programs that are dealt with by the school district. What I have responsibility for is ensuring that police are supported across the province um, in critical areas, making sure that they've got the tools and resources that they need to be able to do the job. Um, the Vancouver School Board, they've made a decision. That's their purview. Um, is a decision that uh, I might have made or you know, what I've said, I hope, is that they put in place uh, programs that will be able to, to deliver the kind of services that uh, were being provided. Uh, and the Vancouver Police Department has indicated that uh, they want to work with the school district uh, on doing that, and I hope that they okay. do that. Okay, let me ask you about provincial support for police services in the province, because as we see this uh, this gun violence escalate in Metro Vancouver, we're hearing from the Liberal opposition calling on your government to do more, to hire more police officers, to fully fund some of these anti-gang initiatives, which they say have been underfunded. Let me play this a clip here for you, Minister. This is uh, Mike Morris, your uh, Liberal MLA, your predecessor, a former Solicitor General under the previous Liberal government, who was my guest here on the show earlier this week, uh, talking about he thinks we need more police officers in the province. Here's what he said. We do. We're we're resourced at, at bare minimum levels uh, and below minimum levels in many areas here. You know, government took over. There was two hundred and ninety thousand public employees. Now they've got around five hundred thousand public employees, but no extra resources in policing. They haven't taken that into wow. consideration at all. In fact. I don't think they consider public safety as high a risk as other areas that we have in government, which is wrong. You know, when you see the, the types of things that are taking place right now, it shouldn't come as a shock uh, to uh, to Mike Farnworth. When I was a Solicitor General, I was briefed on a regular basis on what was going on with the guns and gang activity in the province here. And, uh, and I'm sure that uh, briefing has continued on to this day. So he should have had a heads up on this four or five years ago. Okay, your predecessor there, the former Solicitor General under the previous Liberal government, Mike Farnworth, calling you out there. What do you say to that? I think that was one of the most ridiculous statements I've heard in a very long time. Um, quite frankly, um, it was this government uh, that created the Provincial Witness Security Program. They had 12 years to do something like that. They didn't. Uh, we established a uh, Crime Gun Intelligence Investigation Group. They had 12 years to do that. They didn't. Uh, we've given additional funding to uh, CFSEU and to IHIT. Um, we've partnered with the federal government in terms of uh, additional money to fight guns and gangs that was introduced in 2018-2019. The Fed's putting in $30 million, uh, the province putting in $19.5 million, uh, that runs for five years, directly targeted to guns and gangs. Um, the last time when the BC Liberals were in power, I think, in 2012 was when they added additional officers. Uh, we restored, uh, we got uh, the, the feds to put back in the proper funding for the uh, First Nations policing program. Uh, we hired an additional 30 officers that came on board uh, last year to go to, to small rural communities in British Columbia. Uh, we created uh, a 12-person uh, tactical team that's based in three communities uh, to provide support uh, to, to policing. Um, we have done a significant amount of work. Um, we put in place the first, um, as I told you earlier, uh, firearms forensic lab in the province. The uh, BC Liberals had 12 years to do that. They didn't. Um, so I think we've got uh, we've done a lot of work on policing in this province. Okay, you... And the idea we don't take it ser uh, uh, seriously is just nonsense. Okay, when he says that uh, we don't have enough police officers in the province, he's talked about 200 vacant positions under the current provincial policing contract. Do you acknowledge that, that there are 200 vacant positions there? 
there right now? Are, we, we work with the RCMP on a regular basis because people retire, they move, to, uh, they, move they get promoted. Uh, much of the policing, as you know, in this province is municipally funded. So Langley is provided by Langley, not by the province. Surrey is provided by Surrey, not by the province. Uh, the, the province provides police uh, resources for communities. We pay the full cost for communities under 5,000. Uh, that's why, we, as I said, we brought on the yeah. additional uh, class of, uh, of 30 uh, recruits uh, that came into force last year. Uh, so I think the, uh, the, uh, the B.C. Liberals need to take a long, hard look in the mirror at what they didn't do during their time in office. And we've done an awful lot in the, uh, the time since we got elected in okay. 2017. Okay, Minister, last question for you. Let me ask you about a, sp- a specific program that I think is more directly related to your government, and that is an anti-gang program called the Safer Schools Together program in Surrey that they complain that their funding has been slashed dramatically uh, under your government. Do you, do you regret cutting the funding for that program right now, seeing what's going on with this gang there war? Funding, uh, there is funding in place for that program, and we will have more uh, announcements on that in the very near future. Minister, thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure.